Welcome back to The Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner here at OpenView. If you've been following along this season, you know that we're here to figure out the new customer journey and what that means for SaaS. Today, we hear from Brian Rothenberg. Brian's a partner at the early stage firm Defy. And before that, he was the VP of growth at Eventbrite for six plus years from startup through to IPO. In today's episode, we unpack how Eventbrite leveraged its viral loop to drive growth, how to make distribution a competitive advantage for your company, and how to master org design by embracing cross-functional growth teams. That and more on this episode of Build. So let's dive in with Brian Rothenberg. All right. Well, Brian, thanks so much for joining us here on the Build podcast today. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to do it. And I know that there's two big pillars we want to jump into today. It's product and distribution, both of which are pretty fundamental to any software company. And there's a lot of stuff to unpack there. I guess if we start with product, we'd love to get your thoughts and general philosophy on product. And I think specifically something you had mentioned to me before was how to build a clear and valuable product hook. So unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, so I think, you know, in my experience, step zero is really and obviously building something that people want and need, even if they don't know it yet. And so at our firm Defy, we often talk about the authentic entrepreneur. This is really the founder who stumbled upon a non-obvious but real pain point, often through their own lived experiences. Uh, So we find that this is generally the magic that helps to catalyze the product. And then it's all about building that initial product to solve that real pain. And so a new product has to delight the user. And generally, you know, I think given how crowded the market is today, we're looking for products that are orders of magnitude better than the alternatives, whether that be an existing software solution or even better when it's replacing a user's existing workflow. For example, using my experience at Eventbrite, early on, it was most often replacing pen, paper, spreadsheets, and cash for event registration rather than displacing an incumbent software solution. So a question often becomes from there, uh, how do you get the first new user to experience that that magic moment as quickly as possible. So this is where the product hook comes in and becomes so important. And uh, in my opinion, the best case is when the product is engineered in an inherently viral manner, where it's core to the use case for early users to invite non-users to engage with the product. And through that engagement, these non-users get that magic moment and become users themselves. So sharing a couple examples, Dropbox is one of the classics. So a user shares a file or a folder with a non-user. There's clear value. You know, obviously, this is a better way to share files than that non-user you know, can join, given that the product is engineered to be self-serve and freemium from the start. Just to call out another example that you're, I'm sure, very familiar with, uh, Calendly, a great product where it's clearly inherently viral. You're sharing the ability to schedule with another user, self-serve, and the, the value is easy to quickly grasp. Yeah, I like that idea of a user being able to share the product with a non-user and the non-user gets value out of that first interaction. If you talk about time to value, I think a lot of people think usually of time to value for somebody who's signing up for the product, but this idea of the other end or the other side or the recipient of a invite or of a product loop is incredibly important to optimize as well. And, and I find that one thing there that, that is a huge difference is if the recipient is also in a similar position in the sense of experiencing similar pain. 
And so you gave the example of Calendly, because in that exact moment, both sides of the equation are having the same pain. We need to schedule a meeting and find a time that works for us. And so when you receive that link and you go through that booking experience, uh, you had the same exact pain as the person who sent it to you. And so it makes that, that um, viral loop or that collaborative hook uh, all the more powerful. I think you see similar things with Zoom and, and others as well. I love that alignment of shared pain points. That's a really, really astute point. And I would also say it's kind of, it's a form of social proof, right? It's generally somebody you've had some interaction with, or maybe, you know, they're sending you a new product or service. That's an inherent you know, endorsement of that product and service, which can further reduce the friction for you to try it as a, as a new potential user. How do you go about figuring out where in your product you can place one of these product hooks or viral loops? I think it's very product dependent. And I would start with, you know, even if it's not initially engineered in the product per se, I think there's a huge variance in how powerful the hook is from one product to the next. And so, you know, some products require a lot of explanation to quickly grok the value while others are powerful and obvious from the start. So, you know, I personally love when the hook is something that's basically hiding in plain sight. Um, you know, after you see it, it's so clear and obvious, but it hadn't you know, maybe been built or commercialized before. So for example, we work with a company whose product hook is essentially giving away almost free money. And it sounds too good to be true, but it, it is. And the product puts more money into people's bank accounts in a novel way. So the hook is crystal clear. And, and really this shows up from top to bottom of the funnel through some of the best conversion and engagement metrics I've seen. And this is a rarity, right? So I'm using an outlier example. But thinking about what is that value prop and how do you get people to experience it as quickly as possible? And then building in means for, as you described, people to share that product. And so not every use case will inherently be viral, but looking for the ones that are. And then building in easy to use means within the core product workflows for, again, users to share with non-users. Yeah, no, I like that idea of something hiding in plain sight. I do find that oftentimes talking to founders or product leaders who don't have an inherently viral product, at least not as obviously viral as a Calendly or a Zoom or something like that, might write off the idea of a viral loop. They say, well, that doesn't work for my product. I'm not Calendly. I'm not Zoom. So I have to figure out a different means. But that's probably, or that is in my view, and sounds like in your view, an oversimplification, and it makes it a binary when it's not a binary. There are lots of different ways that you can add a viral loop in. And I like that example you gave of, of the company you work with. I work with one that's, uh, that's in the e-discovery space. And so e-discovery happens when there's a lawsuit. And it's not the thing that you would normally think of as being viral, but like you can't sue yourself. <laughs> there's always somebody else on the other side of the equation, if not multiple parties. And then there's also not just you and the other side. There's also your legal counsel and the other legal counsel. And so what seems like a single, you know, single entity uh, software solution actually becomes at least four different constituents that have some kind of virality amongst them. And if you can create a self-service product, um, you know, you can then lead into this, uh, litigation viral loop, if you will. And so that idea of like what's hiding in plain sight is incredibly important to sort of not just look at what's on the surface. I totally agree. And there's so many different shades of virality, uh, right? There's, uh, you know, one of my favorites is demonstration virality or when the usage of the product shows it off to others and using a consumer example, like think back to Lyft's early days with the pink mustache on the cars, like that's virality and it's kind of engineered into the use case, but it's not in the core product. So again, I agree. There are many, many different means to, to achieve viral dynamics. 
Now, the other concept that you talk about on the product front is that the ideal is to strive for customer obsession and that for you in the seat of a, of a VC, that you look for this idea of the pull coming from the market. What do you mean by that and, and how do you unpack that? Yeah, I think you know, we focus on the early stage as a firm and, and that's typically at the seed in series A. And so for us, it's really about seeing that the, the company is grinding toward product market fit, validating that there's at least a core group of people that really want it. So often it's, you know, how do you get to those first 1000 or so users, which can often take unnatural acts and doing things that don't scale. For example, TaskRabbit, where I previously worked, they went to local mommy groups early on to get their initial customers. So not super scalable, not digital means as, as you and I would generally look for, but it was effective. And so they then talked to these early adopters and used a hypothesis framework to prove and disprove different hypotheses and iterate on the product to really deliver value to the end users, which is obviously the goal. And so with a modest base of initial users, again, as you described, as I like to say, you want to feel the pull from the market. Uh, and this is especially important before you lean too heavily into trying to scale up. I see a lot of companies try to scale up before they achieve that, that pull and product market fit. So some of the signs of that pull are, you know, obviously users love it. So they say they do when you talk to them and they're, they're evangelizing to others. This can also be measured in terms of high retention and engagement. So you want to see early cohorts of users sticking with the product, continuing to use it month over month over month over month and at high levels. And then lastly, I'd say growing organically. So we typically look for businesses to be growing, you know, with greater than 50% organic growth through word of mouth, direct, SEO, et cetera, versus being too dependent upon paid growth or, or direct sales or other means. Yeah, I know from my perspective as a VC, another hallmark that I will see is that oftentimes when you get that initial pull dynamic from the market, it's way ahead of where the company's internal sophistication and maturity is from a go-to-market standpoint. It's almost that the market is pulling you faster than you're ready for. And that ends up creating an opportunity to raise capital because now you have to build the company around the demand that's coming from the market. But when you look into it, oftentimes you can say, well, these numbers look really good. These user growth numbers, these retention numbers, these monetization numbers, but there's like three people that work at the company. How do I square this circle? And I think some people can sort of look at that and say, well, hey, the team's not there yet. But I look at that and sort of interpret it through the lens that you're saying, which is, look, the team we can add to, but the market is the, the constituent that matters the most here. And the market is speaking incredibly loud that regardless of how sophisticated the team is, the market needs this product. The market has this pain and they are sort of beating a path to your door, so to speak, in order to get their hands on the product. Couldn't agree more. I mean, it's impossible to grow without that, at least sustainably. So I totally agree. And the people and building out the teams and, and structures and processes is doable, assuming the first exists. And now shifting gears a bit to distribution, now that we've talked about product and you get the right product out there, how do we get into folks' hands? We've touched on this a bit, but I know something that you're big on is, is building a distribution advantage. We talked a bit about some of those product hooks and, and loops and things like that. But I wonder if you could unpack that from your experience a bit. What are the biggest pitfalls or missing ingredients in companies who haven't been able to achieve this distribution advantage? Yeah, so question I often ask is, what is a business's or team's unique advantage and how do they identify and lean into either those built-in levers or loops first versus trying to do everything? Obviously, being an early-stage company, resource-constrained, can't do everything. And the reality is, whether 
folks like it or not, is that not all businesses have these advantages. So I think you know, 80% of the battle is picking the right startup with these inherent built-in advantages or, or the right opportunity. And so you have to get good at identifying them from the outside. From there, I like to start by forming hypotheses around what the loops are and how impactful each might be. And so generally looking for evidence to support or refute each one, this can be through data, customer insights, or both. And then forming a small team early on to test and learn to see which ones are likely to be most powerful. So this could be using a user-generated content loop where a product produces new content that, that their users create, publishing that content, getting it distributed in SEO and, and seeing how that works. And if so, how big do we believe this can be? Another tactic that I like is visualizing the growth loops in an easy to understand format. I have found that it could be a great way to rally the organization to understand what the core levers are. And it's okay to start really simple. And then from there, once you have a sort of whiteboard sketch, you can work to quantify out, instrument each of the points to understand how can the metrics move? How are they flowing through today? And where is the leverage in the business? Now, in terms of the biggest pitfalls or missing ingredients uh, that you asked, I think one is you know, what we talked about early on, which is the company is not solving a real or important enough pain point for actual customers. And again, seen so many instances of leaning into growth too early. I'll help take culpability for that at my own startup. Prior to TaskRabbit, I founded a company called SkillSlate, and I would say we leaned way too far into growth before we had true product market fit, and the outcome was not great from that. I would say another example is a company called Shift that I advised a long time ago. They've since gone under, but only after raising $60 million in capital. And it was really around prioritizing growth over that core product market fit and, and focusing on unit economics, which leads into my next point about scaling without positive unit economics. So obviously a business to be sustainable has to be able to make money and to do so at scale. So really important to understand early signals there and, and whether if you're losing $2 on every customer in perpetuity just is not gonna be a business that works over the long run. And lastly, I'll say, I often see teams go after these growth loops in much more functional silos. So maybe the CEO looks to marketing to own everything when really you know, marketing and product have to work hand in hand together to drive the best outcomes. A couple other common pitfalls, there can often be lack of CEO support for this agile cross-functional growth squad approach. Also, there are often false negatives. So maybe a growth, a growth team doesn't have enough time to get into a rhythm and start to unlock big enough insights or impact. And then the team gets disbanded and reverts back to sort of the, the, the core product or, or these functional silos again. So there are a bunch of pitfalls along the way, probably more, but I'll stop there for now. One thing that you had mentioned earlier, and certainly is a goal that, that many have, which is to reduce the reliance on paid marketing. So I guess my question is, we talked a little bit about how can you find other avenues for growth outside of paid marketing, and some of these growth loops can, can lead to that. But at what point does paid marketing come back into the equation? And what's the right role for that tactic? Yeah, I think paid marketing is a tool and a toolkit. And I think the thing that I always try to advise companies on is, is viewed as such and don't let it be the only tool. And so when a company leans into paid too early, you know, one, if you'd use it modestly to get, again, those first few thousand users to learn faster, that, that's great. But when it becomes 80, 90, 95% of your new customer acquisition, it's a slippery slope. Again, definitely, you know, I view it more as an accelerant once things are already sort of going and working and a tool that should not be the be all and end all by any means. 
And then diving into how you guys set things up at Eventbrite. So first off, how would you define Eventbrite's growth model? I would say if you asked a lot of people, they'd think it was all about the, the attendee or the ticket buyer side. And really, for the first many, many years, it was all about creating the supply and bringing on event creators. Um, because if you think about the two-sided network, um, you have event creators on one side that create the events, which are effectively inventory. And then you have buyers on the other end of that network. But you know, without products on the shelves, there's nothing to shop for. So early on, it was really about how do you get these creators on board? How do you make them successful? How do you get them creating events and doing so across um, key categories that are important for discovering events, such as music, food events, etc., and do so in the right geographies, given that going to events is inherently, or it was prior to COVID, a uh, very local in-person experience. So the business was set up such that there was a big emphasis on acquiring and onboarding these users. There were some built-in dynamics that were really powerful. So it was a freemium model where you could create an event, a free event, and it would cost you nothing. A lot of those free early event creators would convert into paid and it held very constant over time. We were able to improve it. But at the time we filed for our IPO, it was roughly 17% of free users would convert into paid, which was a huge number. There was a loop whereby once you onboarded an event creator, they would share their event with their own audiences. So they would attract the buyers themselves, which was hugely powerful. But over time, we built out this sort of discovery and marketplace experience on top of that. So Eventbrite over time was driving more and more ticket buyers to the platform, which helped to create that two-sided network dynamic. And so some of the levers there were SEO was huge for the business. It was one of the key strengths listed in our IPO prospectus. And another sort of natural built-in viral dynamic that was supremely powerful is what I call cross-side demonstration virality. It's where people would come in to an event, they'd be invited by an event creator, and you might purchase a first ticket, and then you become aware of the platform. And it started out as a pretty small percentage, but some of those people who started out on the ticket buyer side would later have an event that they needed to host and would think to use Eventbrite based on that first experience as a buyer. They would then use it as an event creator. And so this was a hugely powerful dynamic, especially as you know, annual buyers scaled into the tens of millions per year. The fact that some small percent were converting into the supply side was just hugely powerful. So we found ways through the product to increase that rate of conversion over time, and it became a hugely powerful lever. I like that idea of that you can have two different efforts working in tandem for marketing or for promotion of the platform. You gave the example of the hosts themselves. Um, obviously, when they're hosting an event, it's kind of on them to get attendees to come. And so they're, they're putting it out there, they're promoting it. And not only are they promoting their event, they're also promoting Eventbrite. But then you can also recognize that these attendees might be the, the hosts of the future, as you mentioned. And so, you know, then it becomes incumbent on a growth team or on a marketing team to figure out the best way to engage those users and drive repeat purchase or, you know, drive awareness of other events. And then also at some point, you know, when you're ready to host your own event to sort of shift into that mode as a persona as well. And so that idea of the product plays a role or the growth loops play a role but then as you were mentioning earlier, marketing plays a role as an accelerant, or I kind of think of it as being an amplification of the growth loops that you already have under the hood. So that, that idea of there can be a hand in glove relationship between marketing and product, and that the two together are better than you know, the two apart. 
makes a lot of sense to me. Totally agree. And I think there's, there's another piece tying back to um, your question around sort of how do you identify those loops? One is we saw this behavior happening organically. So it's about looking into your data and talking to your customers and understanding, is this happening already? And for this event attendee into creator loop, it was happening. We could see it in the data. And then we talked to those customers who had started out as a buyer converted to a host or a, a creator and literally heard from their mouths. How did they describe that aha moment? And we really leaned into that. And so we had a team focused on that loop for almost two years and iterated until there were diminishing returns. But over the course of that, that tenure, we tripled the conversion rate that we were seeing. So again, like identify, talk to your customers, look for insights in the data, and then just iterate and go for it until you start seeing those diminishing returns. Now we're getting into it a bit with some of these questions of who does what in the customer journey effectively between growth, marketing, product, et cetera. So at Eventbrite, how did you set up the growth team and how was it structured? And then from that, you know, what, what do you see as being the role of org design in successful growth efforts? Yeah, I think org design is critical and it's, it's evolved tremendously over the years. I would say when I started, gosh, almost eight years ago now at Eventbrite, it was very function-led. And I advocated for a single cross-functional growth team. So dedicated engineers, dedicated product resource, dedicated growth marketers, and all of us working together uh, on these growth loops. And so I think through showing some early successes and how powerful it could be, we shifted into a mode of how do we enable more teams at the company to do this type of work? And so we actually worked to build out tooling, like we built our uh, A-B testing framework used within the company across all product teams. We also did a lot of training around experiment design and, and helped sort of coach other teams. And over time, it became a much more distributed model where there were multiple cross-functional teams with, quote, growth training that were focused on different aspects of the key loops or important areas of the customer journey lifecycle. For instance, we had a full-time cross-functional SEO team. We had teams focused on onboarding, and various other areas. And I think it's a constant experimentation and evolution. You know, at Eventbrite, I reported to our CMO. I later became our CMO. I reported to our head of product, our CEO, our chief revenue officer. The point is, it's always changing and you have to find what works and adapt when it isn't. So Brian, if anyone's listening to, to the podcast right now and they say it's a founder or say it's somebody that's, uh, that's leading growth at a startup, and they recognize that their company or their team right now is relatively siloed and they want to move towards cross-functional, as you described. How do you do that and what are the ways to navigate from here to there? I think it starts with at least one of the founders, ideally the CEO, taking a keen interest in it and evangelizing the importance of it throughout the company. I see companies often have varying degrees of priority placed upon distribution and growth. And so it needs to be sort of a top-down message of how important it is. And then from there, it really depends on stage. You know, if you're a 10-person company, probably doesn't make sense to have a cross-functional growth team yet. You know, it should be top of mind for everyone, but not a dedicated team. As a company scales up, maybe achieves, you know, gets to the late Series A, Series B stage, it might make sense to spin up one of those teams. And I still like the approach of start with one team. It's often really hard to attract the talent of people who've done this before. So sometimes starting with a dedicated team, bring in a leader, ideally, who has done this before can help to build out the core team and evangelize throughout the company. And then over time, as the company scales up, distributing that responsibility to each product team. And I think often 
I've seen the best results in physically sitting people across different functions all together working on the same problem. So say there's an onboarding team, you know, there might be a few engineers, a product lead and a growth marketer and an analyst all literally sitting next to one another. Or, you know, in today's world of remote work, they're talking together on daily standups every day, working together in that regard. But that often leads to the best sharing of insights across different functions and the most diverse point of view for how to achieve the best outcome for customers or in terms of moving metrics. Yeah, it's something that occurred to me as you were describing that is that a lot of times people think of growth or the funnel as being kind of like an assembly line. And it goes from one station to the next station to the next station. And historically, that was from marketing, at least in the B2B context, from marketing to perhaps the SDR sort of sales qualification role to then sales and then hopefully you know to customer success and beyond if you close. And then the question becomes, okay, well, how do I reassemble or how do I modify the assembly line given this, uh, what's changing in, in the customer journey these days? And it occurs to me that that might be the wrong paradigm, that instead of an assembly line, it's more of, I don't know, like a basketball team, right? It's not sort of passing off from distinct stage and distinct person to another distinct stage and team. Instead, it's more, you know, we're passing the ball around and that there's collaboration kind of across different functions and roles. And the goal is clear. We want to score a basket, um, but the way we get there is not linearly. I love that basketball analogy. I, I totally agree. Using it, you know, a couple examples that I see all the time, you know, retention is critically important. And I often see marketing teams being beat up on for, you know, why isn't our retention better? And, you know, often in marketing teams, only levers might be email or maybe notifications uh, for mobile, but it's so much more expansive than that. It's, you know, it's the product solving the core need. Uh, where are the pain points? Where's the friction? How are our interactions with customer service? Is that helping, you know, endear our customers to us further or is it hurting? So I couldn't agree more. It's just all of these pieces moving together and it's better done when these folks are constantly working together. And in addition to the rise of cross-functional teams, how else do you see growth teams evolving and changing right now? Well, for one, there really hasn't been a major platform shift like the rise in social platforms or the desktop to mobile shift of a, a decade or so ago. And this hasn't happened for quite some time. You know, back then, those shifts empowered a slew of companies to build apps or products that people wanted. And they had these relatively greenfield new distribution channels like the App Store to gain distribution. But without a shift like that, those channels are increasingly saturated to the point where building a great product isn't enough. And so I think companies have evolved from build shiny features and they will come mentality to more of a growth is harder than ever. Everyone's on deck from the founder down to make it happen. I view growth teams as mostly an intermediary step in this evolution from the single team that we've talked about that has the skill sets to drive the growth toward the end state of it really being embedded within every team in a company where every team has this growth team mindset and ownership over driving both the overall company growth, but also the growth for their, their piece of that. Again, I think it's, uh, it starts out more concentrated and it becomes more distributed over time. So Brian, one final question for you here, which is you have a perspective that it's incredibly important to innovate on distribution, not just on product. So what do you mean by that? So Justin Kahn from, from Atrium and a number of other startups um, says it really well. He says, first-time founders innovate on product exclusively, where second-time founders are obsessed with distribution. 
I think that's really true. One thing that I look for in all in all startups and all founders is a track record of not only innovating on products, but also on distribution. So that can mean just a very scrappy mindset around always experimenting on what new channels are out there. How can I get you know the next 10, 20, 30, 1,000 users? Constant experimentation and just an obsession over it, much like you know the classic product obsession that we read about throughout Silicon Valley and beyond. And I don't think enough founders have that. It's something that I look for. And, and when you see it, it, it really stands out. And I think is more critical than ever, given, again, the saturation of channels and just how difficult it is today to see breakout success. I think it's a, a really great point. Everybody considers their product to be extremely innovative and they're always iterating. And, you know, A-B testing is incredibly important. And then you get to distribution. And a lot of times it just looks like every other company under the sun. And sometimes that that is the stated goal. It's like, let's go run the playbook, right? <laughs> it's almost like intentionally trying not to innovate and instead trying to copy paste the, the best practices from the inbound marketing stuff and the inside sales stuff that we've always done for the last decade or plus. So this idea of thinking innovatively about distribution and taking learnings from wherever you can, a lot of the learnings that you're indicating are you know, from more of a B2C context. And I think the way that that's starting to come into enterprise and we're starting to see previously growth strategies and growth models and growth tactics that you would have only seen in a consumer context now creeping into B2B is exactly what that innovation looks like. And my biggest advice to founders, and this is why we're so big on product-led growth, is to lean into that innovation versus viewing it as some you know experimental thing that you know is going to fizzle out and we'll just kind of keep doing the same MQL to SQL to close one that we've always done. Couldn't agree more. We, we similarly see the worlds of consumer and enterprise completely, they have already collided and they're blurred and, and we think it's a sort of a false separation. So uh, a lot of innovation happening and it's exciting to see. Well, Brian, this has been fantastic. And I think your experience across your career, but especially your experience at Eventbrite is just incredibly helpful for this conversation because there are so many elements of, of B2B and B2C that are under that, that one umbrella. So thanks for, for coming on the podcast today and sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks so much, Blake, for having me. It was a lot of fun and I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Build Podcast. If you liked what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn for daily product-led growth content and to let me know what you think about the show. Join me this season on Build as we figure out the new customer journey and what comes next in product-led growth. One thing is for sure, all of us in the product-led community are in this together. Take care, everyone, and I'll see you next time here on Build.